If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. I am Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, and it is my honor to welcome you to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, You are welcome here. Will you bow your heads with me? To adapt a line from that brilliant sixth grader named Margaret, are you there, God? It's us, the survivors of January. (laughs) Except, Holy One, we're not even sure we can claim to be survivors because even though it's the 86th day of this month, February still doesn't begin until Thursday. As the author of Ecclesiastes wrote, all things are wearisome, more than one can express. Can you even relate though? I mean, after all, someone once claimed that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. I mean, which is somewhat confusing in this particular scenario. But are you with us on the misery that is January, or has it passed quickly for you? Clearly, we need some inspiration to get us across the finish line, Holy One, that fancy new calendar slash organizer with stickers and all the bells and whistles just isn't doing it. We tried to lean into the snow days, but it's just miserably cold. The hymn promises that if we count your many blessings, angels will attend, help and comfort give you till your journey's end. And we really, really want that to be true. We could use an assist. For now, we echo the prayer of the psalmist. Teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. We know that we can't afford to wish our days away. We're only here for a blink of an eye, even if it feels like this month won't ever end. While hanging by a thread, but trusting that you're sending help, we pray. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. 
Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. One of the more fascinating things I've ever had the opportunity to study is geometry. Now, I, I get that that's a curveball, and sometimes I like to start out that way to see who's paying attention. But I'm going to ask you to stay with me, friends, this morning uh, with this train of thought for a moment. Now, you see, long, long ago, in a place far, far away, I was a student of the history of math. And when I got to study math and its various incarnations through the ages, I learned a lot about geometry. I learned particularly about Euclidean geometry. Euclid was known as the father of geometry, and he wrote a book that was all about the kind of geometry that we think of, most of us, when we hear that word. It had a lot of uh, uh, um, theorems about triangles and circles and spheres. It had lessons on things that we probably are at least somewhat familiar with. These ideas that uh, a right angle is that thing that looks kind of like an L and it's made up of 90 degrees. The idea that when you add up all the angles of a triangle, of every triangle, it's always just the same as two right angles, 180 degrees. Now these are things that we either learned in school or maybe we learned with our hands or our bodies building and constructing things, or even in, in sewing or knitting, we might have used these things that we don't even recognize as Euclidean. And that's all right. I had the opportunity to study the historical context of that type of geometry. And then I also got to study and learn that there are other types of geometry. Did you know that? Did you know that there are other types of geometry where the angles of the triangle add up to being more than two right angles? Or that there's a type of geometry where the, the parallel lines, you know, the idea that parallel lines are two lines that stay the same distance apart forever? Well, there's a type of geometry that says, no, they don't. Those two lines meet at some infinite distance, similar to when you're looking at train tracks. And you can almost see, or at least imagine, that those railroad tracks will meet someday far into the distance. Now, there's these multiple types of geometry, and mathematicians 
uh, worked really hard for hundreds of years to figure out which one was right. Now our scripture this morning has some controversies in it as well that likewise we've been wondering about for hundreds of years. Now not only is there the question of who Jesus is and who we're going to say he is, but there's this other question of the rock that Jesus will build the church upon. Now this is the question I'm going I'm to sit with us for a little bit on. So Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now there's a question in here that we might not notice right away. But what is, who is, where is this rock? This is the question that has consumed different versions of Christianity, different denominations, different doctrines for hundreds of years. Now see, Catholic, Roman Catholic tradition rests on the idea that Peter himself is the rock that Jesus will build the church upon. And this is the, the, the idea that gives reason behind the power and supremacy of the leadership of the Pope. That the Pope is a descendant directly from Peter, one by one by one, and it is upon the Pope as Peter that Jesus will build the church upon. Now there's another idea that says that there in Caesarea Philippi, that place, that land, that geography, is where Jesus was saying is the rock that he will build the church upon. And then there's a still third place, thing, idea, that Jesus is saying he will build the church upon, and that is the faith. The faith of Peter, the faith of the disciples, the faith of those who are following, the faith is what will be the rock that the church is built upon. Now before I came to the Cornerstone Fund, which is my current role, I had moved to Seattle, Washington from Baltimore, where I was a local church pastor, and I moved to Seattle to work for the conference. That's our geographic body in the United Church of Christ. And I was called to be the Minister for Church Vitality. At the time, that was the only and first full-time Minister for Church Vitality in the United Church of Christ. It was a brand new role. I was the first to fill it. So the first thing I had to do was figure out, what does that mean? What am I supposed to do? And most importantly, what is vitality? What does that word even mean? Now I went into it with some sense that we often use that word vitality in the church as a kind of a code word or a euphemism for church growth, right? I had been to many workshops, vitality workshops, that were about marketing my church or were about uh, updating my signage so that folks could find me and find the church. They were all kinds of little tips and tricks 
to make the church more attractive or to evangelize in my community. One idea was to go and make um, those printed door knocker things and walk around my neighborhood and hang them on doorknobs. I didn't do that one. <laughs> but so by the time I got to Seattle, I had some sense that that wasn't really what church vitality was. But I wasn't exactly sure that I knew what it was, and I was completely sure, though, that it wasn't just up to me to decide. And so I uh, got in my car, and I booked a lot of plane tickets, because that region is all of Washington, North Idaho, and Alaska. And I went all over, and I met with pastors and moderators and choir directors and Sunday school teachers, and I just listened to them. I didn't have an agenda. I didn't have really a plan. I just figured, these people are doing this ministry. I wonder what they think. And while we did talk about vitality quite a bit, because they too wanted to know what this new job was all about. Uh, the thing I heard more than anything, though, was about relationship. Was about their hunger for relationship. About the need for connection. Now, when I started reporting back what I was hearing to my board of directors, people wanted to know, well, which churches were saying this? Was it the, the small rural churches out in eastern Washington, far from a major city? Was it, was it the, the struggling urban churches that, that only had a handful of members? Well, the thing was, it was all the churches. Every one of them. Every single church I visited and person I spoke to named that the thing they hungered for most was more connection, more relationship to others in their community, to other churches, to other pastors, to other moderators, to other Sunday school teachers. Friends, even the big churches with multi-staff leadership, still they too said, I wish I, wish I had more people to talk to about this work, about this ministry, about this calling. And so I, I thought, well, this is what vitality is then, I think. It's, it's, it's creating an opportunity, a, a meeting place, a container for more relationship. And so I, I went about doing that. And I developed processes for storytelling and, and events for connecting and, and started bringing people together more and more. And it started to make a difference. And we started to feel more life. But I wondered, was, was that enough? Was that all that vitality was meant to be? So I'm going to tell you about a couple of the churches specifically. There's, there's one church that's really pretty small. Actually, both of these churches are small in terms of their membership. So if we want to measure growth in terms of membership, I'll say they're small. Now, one of them, though, is, is way out in the middle of a really uh, risky place 
to be a progressive Christian. You might be familiar with that experience. It's a place where the elected officials, actually, not just, not just people whispering on the side, but the elected officials are proclaiming white supremacist viewpoints. The elected officials are calling for this region to be a 51st state where only white people are allowed. The elected officials are encouraging violence against LGBTQ people and the LGBTQ community at large. Now this church, while small in number, was out there in the streets and marching, was out there in the streets and waving their rainbow flags, was in their sanctuary with members of the LGBTQ community and specifically members of the trans community showing up, being together, sharing their lives. So if vitality is just about membership growth, what's this church? And so I knew it wasn't just that. It couldn't be just that. Because I didn't know if I knew how this church could be any more vital to their community. And there's another small church on the other side of the state. Also small, tiny in membership, tiny even in their building. One of a very, very small space, and yet they hosted dozens of 12-step recovery meetings. The building was full of thousands of people each week, even though it was only about 40 people on Sunday. And when another church in town uh, sold their building, and the overnight shelter that had been there for many years could no longer be there, this little church that barely had enough space as it was said, well, come, come check it out. Maybe we can make it work. And you know what? They did. They did. They made it work that they didn't have to, they didn't have to shut down any of their meetings and they didn't have to shut down any of their ministry and they welcomed the overnight shelter. And I saw this church and I thought, well, this church is for sure vital. Where would the community be without them? And yet something still made me wonder about, is this, is this enough growth? What do we mean by growth? And is it either or? Is vitality the opposite of growth? Well, going back to that geometry point, the thing was, after hundreds of years of mathematicians trying to prove that parallel lines, these two lines that stay equidistant apart, that they do that, or that they merge together, it turns out that you can't prove that one or the other is true. That depending on what type of geometry you want to be working with, what surface you're working with, where you're using it, you have to decide to grant one or the other as a, as a starting place. And then everything else is derived from it. You have to decide what you want to grant as your starting place, and everything else is 
derived from it. So in our scripture this morning, there's, there's an argument ever since that says, what is the rock that Jesus will build the church upon? Is it Peter? Is it the land? Is it our faith? Well, which is it? Now I say that might be the wrong question. Because if we read just a little more carefully, we see that Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now we've gotten so wrapped up in trying to decide what the rock is that we miss the idea that Jesus says he will build the church. Not me, not you, not the Catholics or the evangelicals or anyone else. Jesus will build the church. Jesus will build the church. Maybe that meant when I was the vitality minister that it wasn't my job to build the church. Maybe I'd been confusing myself for Jesus. None none of you have ever done that before. (laughs) So when I moved to the Cornerstone Fund, which is my current role, I'm the chief relationship officer, I brought a lot that I had learned about relationship, about gathering people together, about learning what they need and want and how they can be community. And now the Cornerstone Fund is an organization that actually, literally, builds. (laughs) So the Cornerstone Fund is a church extension fund, and and what we do is we make loans to churches and faith-based nonprofits that that need money to, to renovate their fellowship hall or to build affordable housing on their uh, parking lot space. Or maybe they need a loan because their roof is leaking or their boiler just went out. So we make loans to churches, and so It's a little confusing because I think we kind of almost do build the church. (laughs) So even in this role, though, where I'm a little confused because I think we kind of build the church, I have to remember, we don't build the church the way Jesus does. Because what Jesus is talking about as the church is bigger and less specific and it includes all of us. And the other part that I think we miss in our scripture, I'll admit, this is a part I've missed many times, is at the end, when he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone. Did you all catch that? So if everyone was ordered not to tell anyone, how did we get this story? Now, I think that's just a little silly, but also I'll tell you, scholars say that what he meant by that is that we're meant to tell the story with our lives, with our work, with our ministry and our relationship and our love, not just with our words. Now, so if we are committed to telling the story not with our words, to not tell anyone at least, that's what Jesus says, then what what are we doing? Well, in the UCC, we have this this great saying that says we're called to be the church. 
We're called to reject racism. We're called to embrace diversity. We're called to care for the poor, to fight for the powerless, to share resources. I think this church knows a little bit about these things. I checked y'all out. <laughs> I saw your pictures of, of being in the street with your rainbow flags. I saw that you do Meals on Wheels. That you do after-school tutoring. I learned from Pastor Lori that just recently you had an abortion exhibit. I see you, you, see, I see you doing it. You're being the church. Do you ever wonder, does it ever creep into your thought, are we growing enough? Are we building the church enough? Do you, like I do sometimes, slip into worrying that you're not being Jesus enough? Well, just so you know, that happens to all of us. I don't go any church, to any church anywhere in the country where I don't know, I don't see that there is some fear or some anxiety that we're not doing enough. That we're not doing enough to build, to grow, to expand. And I think that's why this scripture is actually so valuable, even though there's some controversy in it. Because it's a reminder that when we get busy being the church, Jesus will build. It reminds us that our calling is not to be Jesus. Our calling is to be Jesus' disciples, his followers. Our calling is to be the church in all these myriad ways that you're already being. That this little church that I told you about just keeps welcoming more and more people. Friends, I got to tell you, they're just about to uh, start a feeding ministry as well. There was a feeding ministry in another church in the town that, that, that the church is renovating. They're building their physical building anew, and that feeding ministry doesn't have anywhere to go. And it's going to go to this little church that I kid you not, the space, it's like, it's like the clown car of churches. <laughs> just, just more and more people will fit right in there, and they make it work. Now, it turns out that there isn't a right answer to geometry. There isn't a right answer to the rock the church will be built on. The right answer, the right answer we can get from our scripture today is that Jesus says he will build the church. We just got to be it. Friends, we just have to be the church. Not that it's easy. Not that it isn't without risk, but we know how to do it. I see you doing it. I see churches all over the country doing it. Let's keep being the church, and Jesus will build. May it be so. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. 
Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.